Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello, hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of ClearCast. I'm your host, Katie Keller, and today we have Nick McKinley, the founder of nonprofit Deliver Fund, joining the podcast. So Deliver Fund's mission is to end human trafficking, such an important and critical mission. And they do this by providing actionable intelligence to their law enforcement partners in the U.S. So Nick and many of Deliver Fund's employees have spent their entire backgrounds dismantling the illicit networks overseas against violent extremists. And now they're implementing the same strategies against human traffickers. So taking a lot of what our security clearance holders may be listening today are doing and then moving it into the nonprofit sector, which I totally love being an activist myself. So today we are going to talk about his journey through the military, working intelligence for three-letter agencies and how listeners maybe can pivot their careers. But before I dive into my questions, Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Excellent. Let's start with your career and your journey, starting with the United States Air Force, and then how you eventually found yourself doing intel. So you were focusing on counterintelligence and OPSEC as a project manager. And I'd really love to hear, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners too, how were you able to pivot fields, especially through a military transition and everything that comes along with that? When they look at my resume, they're like, oh, wow, this is interesting, right? It's, you know, Air Force Pararescue and CIA. And, and I was a, a staff officer at, at the CIA. People look at my resume, they're like, ooh, this is like Jason Bourne. I'm like, no, not at all, actually. It's a whole lot more like Forrest Gump than, uh, than Jason <laughs> Bourne, I, I assure you. I basically prove a Swiss cheese theory. But I was, uh, you know, I started in the Air Force, specifically joined to be an Air Force Pararescueman. was lucky enough to be one of the people from my selection class selected to be a Air Force pararescueman, did that for 10 years. And then I jumped into a private personnel recovery startup, which was really obviously the first time that my feet had gotten wet in business. And the startup didn't quite turn out to be what I thought. That was probably the biggest lesson, but I did get to see how how companies are made. And that was uh, an incredible incredible education. From there, I actually did about six months in Hollywood, uh, but I try not to try not to tell people that. And then was recruited to the CIA where I spent a number of years in a very small operationally focused unit that did the operational facilitation for the directorate of operations in high threat areas. And that was also an incredibly amazing education But in that, I saw what I'm sure a lot of your listeners have seen, which is that there are things that the government cares about and the things that the government doesn't really care about. And and to say the government cares about something is very different or, or doesn't care about something is very different than saying the people who work for the government don't care about something. And I saw that in the fight against human trafficking. So I was in Lashkargah, Afghanistan, and we had what I like to call you know, smoking gun intel on a human trafficker. And there was really nowhere to write that up. There was nowhere to send that intelligence. And I was working with a counterpart from JSOC and we we got pretty frustrated over a period of, of, of weeks trying to get somebody to pay attention to this intel. And we cared about it as government employees, but the government writ large, this was just not an issue for them. And so I decided that 
I wanted to try to solve that problem, to do something about it. So I left the CIA in 2015 and uh, started Deliver Fund. Yeah. And I, I feel like we hear that and it takes, you know, these these great minds and these passionate minds because it's not a focus. It's not a goal for the government. It takes these passionate minds to start things like Deliver Fund. And I, I just, I need to take a moment. You spent a little bit of time in Hollywood. Please dish. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, I was training a law enforcement department in the Southwest and was just as a volunteer. Uh, they needed training and they couldn't really afford training and I needed a place to shoot and that's, those are hard to come by. And so they gave me ammo and a place to shoot in order in return for, for training. And so I was just training them. And uh, it was actually an A-list Hollywood actor that I, I'll keep his name out of it, came out to the range with one of the stunt coordinators. And they saw me teaching and they said, hey, we want to talk to that guy. And and I'm not a TV guy. In fact, until COVID, I hadn't had a TV for probably 15 years. I finally bought one during COVID because my kids were going nuts. My entire family was down with COVID and we like had to figure something out. So we had one shipped to the front door. <laughs> but other than that, I'm, it's just not really a TV and a movie guy. And so I didn't know who this actor was. And I actually approached his bodyguard because I thought he was the actor. And the actor started cracking up because he thought that was hilarious. And I started working for him for about six months on a movie. Uh, and they actually put me in SAG, did the whole nine yards, the whole Hollywood thing. And I was in the process and finishing my clearance process with the CIA at the time. And when the movie was done, they were like, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna change your life. We want to, you know, we want you to come do like bigger and better projects with us. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go back to, to doing some work that is, that's meaningful to me. And so I'm probably one of the few people in the world who actually had the opportunity to go, you know, big time Hollywood and turn that down for a, a GS pay scale paycheck and 10 months a year overseas. Well, you know, I was going to say, I know that the alphabet agencies do like to pull spies from Hollywood just because they're so well connected, but we'll, we'll leave that there. So you found yourself at the CIA as an intelligence officer. So you know, you talk about the work being so meaningful. So what drew you to this space? When I was in the Air Force, you know, as Air Force Pararescuemen, which is, you know, probably the least understood and least known about special operations component. And everything you do in pararescue is all about, it, it's all about cleaning up after a crisis, right? There's, there's, in order for pararescuemen to have a job, there has to be something that goes wrong or something that has a high probability of going wrong. So, you know, I sat alert for the space shuttle launches, you know, in case something went wrong, Air Force pararescuemen have a whole process for dealing with that. I was attached to SEAL teams in case something went wrong. I was attached to ODAs in case something went wrong. I sat alert for combat operations in in Iraq and Afghanistan in case something went wrong. And so that, that was my whole career, right? It was all about crisis response. And I wanted to try the other bookend of operations, which is, and the way I like to look at it is in crisis prevention. So, you know, we only put butts in seats, as, you know, General Mattis liked to call it, if the CIA fails, if the, if the intelligence community fails 
in preventing something, and and this is obviously I'm talking about you know the military writ large. Obviously, the agency and, and the intelligence community uses military assets, especially in the special operations world, as, as a tool for prevention. But I'm talking about like you know a conventional military, right? An, an E2 Marine managing a you know squad automatic weapon on a street corner in Fallujah. That only happens if the intel cycle does not allow the prevention of that war. And so I wanted to go try the other side. And so to me, uh, I'd done a little bit of work with the agency as a pararescuman, and it seemed like that was the place to go. So that's what I wanted to do. And then also, I kind of, I don't know if you could call it a chip on my shoulder or, or, or what, but when I hear that something is extremely difficult, uh, and I think by the CIA's own standards, they hire about 1% of applicants. If I hear that something is difficult and it's only like, say, 5% or 1% uh, are doing it, um, I'm going to go try it. I assume usually that I will fall on my face, but I'm going to go try it. So, you know, Air Force pararescuemen, one of the most highly selective uh, special operations career fields. The whole reason why I wanted to go do that and not another one was because statistically I had a a lower chance of making it. And then, you know, why go to the CIA and not the NSA or the DIA since I was already in, in the Defense Department? Well, the statistics that I could find, now we can have all kinds of arguments about whether or not they were true, but the information I could find said that that was the hardest one to get into. So that's what I did. I did the same thing for undergrad. I did the same thing for grad school, right? It was like, it was like, uh, it, it's almost kind of like I'm drawn to the things that people say I can't do. Pivoting careers, another very hard thing to do. And so moving from the CIA, you were more interested in like software and data with that intelligence component, obviously with what you're doing with Deliver Fund today, which we'll talk about in a, in a bit, but you started a SaaS investment due diligence platform. And so how, how were you able to kind of start that after supporting the intelligence community as a govy? It kind of comes down to a basic philosophy of mine, which is that if I am in a five-year period, the same coming out of a five-year period, the same as as when I entered that five-year period, I have failed. And what I mean by that is there should be, you know, in your profession, a constant reinventing of yourself, constant reinventing of yourself. We have this line of of t-shirts on our on our website at Deliver Fund that says, uh, you know, from shooters to computers, because I had the good fortune, obviously being a special operator, the, where I was in the agency, you know, that the CIA does have agents, does have special agents. They're not law enforcement, but it's a, it's different than say being a case officer or something like that. There's some, some added authorities. You actually have a badge and a gun in the States as well as the stuff that you're doing overseas. So, you know, that, that is an incredibly small group of people and most people don't realize that. So I had to learn, right, when I went from Air Force Pararescue to the business world, to the startup world, even though it was somewhat similar and it was an adjacent space operationally, it was a completely different operating environment because now I no longer have the authorities and, and uh, resources of the government. I have to figure out how to accomplish what was relatively the same mission, but within the confines of the civilian world. Well, that meant that I had to get in the books 
right? Podcasts and YouTube weren't really a big thing back then, right? That, that's free education today. So at the time, it was I had to get in the books. I had to find everything that I could and talk to everybody I could in order to learn something new, in order to reinvent myself. It doesn't mean that you forget where you came from. It doesn't mean that you forget what it is that you did in the past, but it's not really that hard if you if you just want to make a pivot from, say, a facility security officer into cybersecurity, that is not that hard of a pivot. It's just on you to figure out how to properly message that to the world. And I think too many times in the in the veteran community, in the cleared community, people act like it's the hiring manager in the civilian world's job to know how their government experience applies to the job they applied for. And that is not the case at all. It is our job as the ones who are making the pivot to educate them on why we are the best candidate, how our past experience lends itself to success in the new job. Uh, and as an example, right, let's say you're in charge of facility security. Well, every single person in the government who has a security clearance has a baseline education in cybersecurity. Every single one. Because we have to know that stuff because we have these huge counterintelligence issues that we have to deal with. And so being able to translate that, keeping somebody out of a building, keeping you know, somebody out of a physical space that they're not supposed to be in, the same principles apply to keeping somebody out of a server they're not supposed to be in. It's a different application of the principles and the tools are different, but by and large, it's the same thing. So I think that when it comes to pivoting, right, we people look at, oh, how do I how do I pivot into a new job? How do you reinvent yourself into the person that you need to be in order to get the job that you want. And that's that's on us. And I look at this in five-year spans, right? Some people might look at it in 20-year spans. Some people might look at it in two-year spans. I don't think the time frame really matters. I think what matters is the fact that you put in the work. So I remember being deployed in Iraq and um, obviously, you know, there's a lot of downtime in, in war. Uh, between operations. Uh, so a lot of people were getting really, really good at playing Xbox. And I was reading a lot of books about economics and computer science, kind of, kind of two, two subjects that have, that have fascinated me. Well, fast forward 10 years and I talked to the same people that I was deployed with in Iraq. And they're like, well, why? Holy smokes, did you go back to school? Did you do all these things? And, and I say, no, remember how you used to make fun of me because I wasn't in the team room playing Xbox with the boys. I was in my room. I was in my chew reading books. That's how come I am where I am today. It's how come you're coming to me asking for a job, not the other way around. It's how come you're working for a large company instead of starting your own. So that philosophy of reinvention, we should apply that to ourselves. And if, if, if we take that and we apply it to ourselves, then we realize that, oh, we have a security clearance. Well, what does a security clearance signal to an employer? I, you don't need a security clearance to work at Deliver Fund or any of my companies. Like you just don't need it. And in a Deliver Fund, we're primarily a you know an intelligence company that builds software and we build tech that protects society from human traffickers. But we also have intelligence analysts doing direct support operations with law enforcement. So 
if you are you know an intelligence analyst with a security clearance what that tells me is that you have a certain level of reliability that maybe one of your peers in the civilian world doesn't have so even though you don't need a security clearance to work for me you actually will get extra points because you have that clearance because you've gone and done the things that are required to get the clearance that's just an extra point it doesn't actually tell me how you're going to be good at the job that I need you to do. And I think that process of reinvention is really what separates people who can can move around freely and easily within the employment space and and those who can't. Well, and I love that 5-year reinvention that's something that I think everyone should keep at the forefront of their mind because it, it just it shows that you're hungry for new things. It shows that you're hungry to to better yourself. It shows that you're hungry to take risks as well. You gotta you gotta risk it for the biscuit sometimes to to make some good things happen. And so let's talk about the good things that Deliver Fund is doing. You talked a little bit about you know intelligence with law enforcement. You're building tech. I love it all. So let's talk about the story. What made you leave the IC to start this incredible nonprofit? Again, it was it was just really over a, a period of about seven years realizing that. The- the government wasn't doing anything. Uh, I think most people who work for the government understand that there is not a real focus on the fight against human trafficking. There's incredible people in the DOJ and the FBI, Homeland Security, who are doing their best. And if offered the opportunity to fight human trafficking full time, would do it. Uh, there are a few people fighting human trafficking full time. But here's kind of one of the epiphanies that I had. We have a drug enforcement agency, and it's an incredible organization that does, does good work. Uh, however, about 90% of drugs are, are legal or, or have some type of legal use, right? Fentanyl, cocaine, they all have some type of legal use. Yet we spend double-digit billions of dollars every year fighting what is the illicit sale of legal commodities. We have a Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Alcohol, tobacco, and firearms are all legal. In fact, most of my friends from Texas consider that a convenience store. And yet we spend billions of dollars a year fighting what is the illicit sale of alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, which are legal commodities. The 13th Amendment, just as a beginning, and a host of other laws make 100% of human trafficking illegal. Yet where is our counter-human trafficking agency? Where is the budget? for you know for fighting human trafficking. I mean if we're spending billions of dollars a year fighting the illicit sale of alcohol, tobacco and firearms, shouldn't we be spending at least that much fighting human trafficking? And the reality is we don't even spend we don't even spend as a country 10% as much on fighting human trafficking. That was the T intersection that I came to where I really had to decide, am I going to go right or am I going to go left? I could have stayed in the IC. I was kind of on a career rocket ship. Things were going great. But I also knew that there was a problem over here that I kind of wanted to solve. And I think too many people take the comfortable route. It would have been very comfortable you know, I'd, I'd come in as a staff officer. I'd been promoted ahead of my peers. I was on a what professionally would have been a very good career. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? I'm not saying this from a place of judgment. And all of the good work that we had done at Deliver Fund and, and have done so far and will continue to do in the future will not have been done. 
So I could have stayed in the IC. And, and the way that I looked at it was, where can I have the biggest impact? When I left the CIA, they didn't miss me. They just replaced me with a younger, faster, smarter, stronger version, right? And so, you know, if, if anything, the intelligence community probably, it was probably a positive to them for me to leave. But still, nobody would have been taking a tech-centric um, and target-centric analysis method approach to fighting human trafficking. We're still the only ones on the planet that do that. So if that's the case, then I'm going to, you know, have a little bit of impact if I stay in the IC, but I could potentially change the world if I take the uncomfortable path to trying to figure out how to, you know, fight human trafficking. So that is the way that I looked at it. And kind of when confronted with that uncomfortable path, now take into account the fact that I was three and a half years into that five-year plan. I had already been doing all the work for almost 10 years on the things that I needed to learn and the things that I needed to do in order to execute on the uncomfortable path. So why not give it a shot? And if I succeeded, I could potentially have a hand in changing the world for the better. And if I failed... Well, then I would have an incredible education and set of experiences that I could pivot into something else. That was my mindset. Well, and dude, you are a lot cooler than me with everything that you're doing. Oh, my goodness. And I mean, just your outlook on it. If you succeed, that's amazing. You're doing some incredible work to help our society at large. And if you fail, you know, at least you learn something along the way. And I think that's kind of the common theme that I see you know, and I'm just a podcast host, but with all of my guests, that's kind of the common theme I see with people who I view as really successful. It's it's taking a look at experiences in that light. The Silicon Valley venture capital community says that failures are not a bug, they're a feature. So uh, in fact, I know some venture capitalists who will only invest in founders who have had a previous failure. Because they know that those failures know what not to do. They don't necessarily know what to do, but they know what not to do. And I really look at, if I've got a wake of failures in my past, right? Everybody tends to focus on the cheerleading on the things that have been successful, but you know, it took me two tries to get through CDQC, right? Combat Diver Qualification Course, uh, which is the Army's hardest school. Uh, it took me two tries to get through one of my tests that you have to take to become staff officer at, at the CIA. It's taken me so far about three years longer to build the things that I wanted to build, you know, the tech that we want to build at Deliver Fund. It's taken me about three years longer than I thought. So I don't, I don't, get, it, I don't get attached to the timeframes. I get attached to the outcomes. I just started a five-year period in March. I'm 45 years old today. When you talk to me when I'm 50 years old, I will be virtually unrecognizable as the former military special ops guy, as the former you know, CIA special agent. I will be almost unrecognizable as those people. They will still be on the paperwork, right? They will still inform where I came from, but they will no longer be my identity. And I think that is one of the most important takeaways that I learned from past mentors, and I think, you know, if I can pass on, which is that what you do is not who you are. So if you're the special ops guy who your identity is the fact that you're a special ops guy, that's where your value to yourself is, 
well, then how are you ever going to be able to no longer be the special ops guy or, you know, the CIA analyst or the DIA, you know, counterintelligence analyst or whatever it is that you do. So you have to have the courage to go suck at something new. You have to have the courage to be uncomfortable and and, and go reinvent yourself into something new. I love it all. You better be careful. I think you might get some inquiries for to be a mentor to quite a few folks after <laughs> this. Uh, just with your experience in the government and the private sector, software, data, all of this brought together for, you know, Deliver Fund's mission of using intelligence to combat human trafficking. Deliver Fund also provides leadership for the International Human Trafficking Analysis Center, and that's a consortium of companies who serve as the central collection and dissemination platform for human trafficking intelligence. So let's talk a little bit, kind of, you know, mentors can be included in this, but let's talk a little bit more about these partnerships and really why they are so important just in general, but also to combat human trafficking. The reason it's so important is the same reason the joint environment is so important in the fight against terrorism or narcotics. Nobody is capable of doing everything. So when we started fighting human trafficking, we really looked at what needed to happen. And we pivoted a lot over the last really 10 years, because while Deliver Fund did not become official and did not become operational until April of 2015, we got our 501c3 status in October of 2014. Uh, but we actually started it in January of 2013. So when you look at it through that lens, it's like, okay, well, we took two years to figure out what we thought we were going to do, which is completely different than what we're actually doing today. And the reason why is because we did not get married to an outcome. We got married to a problem. And as technology changed and as we learned more about the problem, we would con we continually pivot and refine the solutions that we're building. And also keeping in mind, you know, unit economics and looking at, at ability to scale. And that's something I think a lot of people have uh, have a hard time with is they join an organization doing one thing, but then new data is coming in constantly. At least it, it, it is if you're paying attention. It's always the new data is always there. The question is, are you paying attention to it? Are you measuring it? And so as we would collect this new data and we would learn these new things, we, we would pivot the model to be better at fighting the problem. And at the same time, understanding we can't be all things to all people, so we have to have partnerships. When we look at, at the risk side of the fight against human trafficking, that falls under law enforcement's purview. So there are people who will basically go play cop for a day, maybe because they didn't really do anything exciting in their life. And so now they want to go kick doors and rescue trafficking victims and stuff like that. Well, that is not only unethical, um, in most cases is illegal if you are doing that and you don't have a badge and a gun. That is a law enforcement officer's job. So if you want to do that work, you go be a law enforcement officer or you do what you can to enhance the mission of law enforcement, which is what we do through our technology and direct support operations. If you you look at at the the kind of the cleanup side of the fight against human trafficking, which is which happens at the restoration homes, uh, those restoration homes and the people who run them are are simply 
amazing humans. Not only are they usually highly educated in order to be able to to do that type of work, but it's extremely frustrating um, and extremely difficult to do. My hats are off to them. I don't need to engage in that work because one, I wouldn't know what I was doing if I was if I was doing that. That's not where my area of expertise is and not where my area of study has been. But also that is a full-time job unto itself. So we need partnerships with restoration homes in order to inform what we build on the technology side. The technology side, we stepped in there because nobody was doing that. And the few people that we could find who were thinking about maybe trying to do something around the technology side, not a single one of them had any experience hunting bad guys on the ground or informing those who were hunting bad guys on the ground, especially at a high scale. So that's why we bring in these analysts. We bring in people who've done this work in extremely dangerous environments and other places in the world. And then we just, we're just taking them and pivoting them towards a different target set. But that doesn't mean that I can go collect all the data in the world. So that's why we have to have data partners. We have to have you know, partnerships on the victim restoration home side. We have to have law enforcement partnerships. We have to have legal partnerships. We have to have judicial partnerships. It's really through that joint partnership environment that you can get things done. One thing that I want to pull on before, you know, we close out is that you're, you were married to the problem and not necessarily the process. And I think that's important as you are navigating what careers you're passionate about as well. And so I did want to give us some space for closing thoughts if you have any for our audience today. My, my only closing thoughts would be around that, that reinvention piece. Cleared work is extremely important, but it's not who you are. And also it will always be there for you. So if you are listening to this and you want to go try something new, or you want to go try a different agency, or you want to go you know, start your own business, you're completely capable of doing that. The very fact that you're doing cleared work means that you have already been through a more strenuous selection process than about 90% of, of the regular world. It doesn't matter that you don't have an MBA. You can go start a business. All the information you need to reinvent yourself to do that is there. It doesn't matter that you don't know anything about cybersecurity, but you're a facility security officer. You can very easily pivot between the two if you just decide that you want to do it. The first step in reinventing yourself is deciding that that's what you want to do. From there, everything else is easy as long as you put it to work.